You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Have you ever paused to ask yourself why it is that people do not believe in Christ and trust in the gospel to save them? You see people from day to day who flounder around in their sin and walk in their sin and they choose lifestyles and behaviors that are destructive to themselves and to their surroundings and yet they have been exposed to the truth and they have heard the truth and they know the truth. They have seen the truth lived out in your life and you've shared the truth with them. But it seems that they love their wickedness and hate the truth. And from my perspective, and I know I have people like this in my family and in my life that I have crossed paths with, from my perspective, I look at it and I say, how can you not see what I see and want what I have? Because to be honest with you, I cannot fathom the idea of going one day without Christ in my life. And I do not know how it is that I ever lived for 14, 15, 16 years without Christ in my life. How did I ever get by? Apart from all of the spiritual blessings that I enjoy in the heavenly places and the eternity that awaits me, just the temporal blessings themselves, the comfort of His presence, the confidence of His providence, the peace that I have, the the comfort in the midst of trials and tribulations and understanding His Word and having that to rely upon, the confidence that I have in His watch and care and protection over me and His sovereignty and His providence as He works out my entire life, comfort in the midst of my trials and my tribulations, and I would just wonder how in the world could I ever do that without the Lord in my life? Ever ask yourself that? Then you have people who are on the outside, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but people who are on the outside of the faith looking in, and they see what you have, and to them the thing that is so precious to you is something that they disdain. They don't want it. They don't like it. How can they not want what is to me so precious? Now theologically I understand the answer to that question. It is because man is born in sin and depravity and wickedness, and he can do nothing to change that. He can do nothing to change his course. He can do nothing to change his behavior. He cannot do righteousness. He cannot please God. He cannot even make a choice that pleases God because of he is a slave to his sin. He is under sin, in bondage to his wickedness. He hates righteousness. And left to himself, man will always choose that which is wicked, that which is sinful, and that which is wrong. Always, without exception. Because our natures are corrupt. And so sinful man, if left to his own devices, will always hate righteousness and choose wickedness and love wickedness. Always. So theologically, I understand that that is true. But then I look at it and I say, how can you not see what I see and want what I have? Because to me, the cross, the gospel, the death and the resurrection of Christ are so precious, so valuable, so attractive... And I cannot imagine one day without those at the center of my life. And I would not forfeit them for anything. Paul explains what the difference is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we read it for our scripture reading this morning. And it is to the church in Corinth that he explains why it is that not many noble, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty have placed their faith in Christ. And Paul says it is because the preaching of the cross 
is foolishness to those who perish. To those who are continuing in their sins, who are walking the path to eternal perdition and suffering, the proclamation of the cross is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. To those who are the called, the message of the cross and the message of Christ and His death and His burial and His resurrection are the aroma of life to life. But to those who are perishing, these things are foolishness. The preaching of the cross is foolishness. God would make a terrible marketing director. He made absolutely the worst marketing decision that has ever been made in the history of the universe. He took a product, that is salvation, the gospel and the cross, and he decided to not make it attractive. Instead, he made it offensive. He could have made it an attractive. He didn't. Not only did he not make the product itself attractive, he actually made the advertising for the product, which is the preaching of the cross, the preaching itself, he made that unattractive and offensive. So that not only is the product itself, and I, I speak in human terms because I don't believe that the gospel is a product that we must market, the product itself in marketing terms is unattractive, offensive, and absurd. And the method by which that product is given to mankind is offensive, unattractive, and absurd. Worst decision ever. If we were to preach a message of health and wealth and prosperity and come to Christ because He'll make your business better, He'll make you a better employee and a better employer and give you everything that you've always wanted, peace and happiness and comfort and big bowl of cherries that is life. If that were our message, nobody would object. would never offend anybody. wouldn't raise anybody's ire. Nobody, it wouldn't engender anybody's hatred. But that's not the message of the cross, is it? The message of the cross is offensive. In fact, Paul says to the Jews, it was a stumbling block. By that he meant they could not accept it. Our Jewish Messiah crucified? That's blasphemous. To suggest that the Messiah, the promised one, was hung on a cross like a common criminal, and the Romans crucified thousands of people every year, to suggest that he was hung on a cross like a common criminal, and suffered the taunts and the torments and the ridicule and the mockings of men, and that he suffered and died like the worst of scum, was to the Jew offensive. It was a stumbling block. They said, we cannot accept that. We cannot believe that. But to the Greek, it was absurd. The Greek said, you worship a crucifixion victim? You're a moron. You're a fool. What fool worships a criminal? Yet this is your God? We would expect that your God would be somebody who would come in glory and He would be noble. And Yet you're telling us that your God, the man you worship, the man that you follow, the man that you proclaim, died on a cross. To the Jew, it was an obscenity. To the Greek, it was an absurdity. Couldn't get over it. Worst marketing decision in the history of the world to give us a message and a method of proclaiming the message that is obscene and that is absurd. Paul goes into Corinth in Acts chapter 18 with his obscene, absurd, and ugly message of the cross, and he proclaims it to the Corinthians in the synagogue. You need your Bible open to Acts chapter 18. We're going to be looking at some of Paul's ministry in Corinth this morning, Acts chapter 18. It was Paul's custom to go into the synagogue when he traveled and he went into a city. If there was a synagogue there, that's where Paul went first off. 
This is his custom, Luke says. You go to a city, you go to the synagogue, and you try to evangelize. And once the Jews resisted you there, then you leave and you go to the Gentiles and you continue to minister in the city. That was Paul's pattern. And he was doing this just on the just on the weekends, and he was working, you will remember from last week, during the week as a tent maker, a leather worker, to provide for his own needs until Silas and Timothy came back from Thessalonica with an offering from the churches of Macedonia to support Paul in his ministry. And then Paul gave himself to the one thing that he did better than anything else, which was the teaching and preaching and ministry of the Word. And that's where we pick it up in Acts chapter 18, after verse 5, where Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself entirely or, in, or completely to the Word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Here is my ridiculous, absurd, obscene, gross message that is difficult for you to accept, impossible for you to understand, and he's giving it out to the Jews in the synagogue. Now we're going to see that Paul's ministry in Corinth produced three things this morning. Blasphemers, believers, and baptisms. First of all, let's look at the blasphemies and blasphemers in verse 6. Before we get to verse 6, I want to clue you into something that happens between verse 5 and verse 6. Now, I guess I should say I don't know precisely that this happened precisely between these two verses, but this is a good place to make note of it because it happened at this time. And the thing that happens between verse 5 and verse 6, and you'll want to write this down in the margin of your Bible, 1 Thessalonians was written. 1 Thessalonians was written between verse 5 and verse 6 of Acts chapter 18. How do I know that? I know that because Paul addresses the Thessalonian church, and with him are Silas and Timothy and Paul. Those three people are the from in the from line of the book of 1 Thessalonians. To the church in Thessalonica from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. 1 Thessalonians 1.1. 1 Thessalonians 3 says that Silas or Timothy came back from Thessalonica because Paul sent him from Athens, and so Paul says when Timothy returned to us. He brought good news of your faith and your love, and we've been encouraged, and we're excited to hear of the good news. And so Paul turned right around, and he wrote this letter to the Thessalonians. The return of Timothy is Acts chapter 18, verse 5. So when Timothy returns in 18, verse 5, Paul fires off 1 Thessalonians. Second thing I want you to make note of is down at verse 11, where Luke tells us, And he, that is Paul, settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Between verse 11 and verse 12, I wrote down in my Bible, 2 Thessalonians written. How do I know that? Because 2 Thessalonians was written only a couple of months after 1 Thessalonians. Both of the epistles were addressed to the Thessalonians from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. So Paul and Silas and Timothy are with Paul. And it was written only a couple months after 1 Thessalonians. So in Corinth, Paul writes 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. Third thing I want you to take note of before we get to verse 6 is verse 12. Luke gives us a little piece of information that helps us put a date in the margin of our Bible while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. And we know from secular history and from writings that were found in the district of Achaia that Gallio was proconsul from July of 51 A.D. to June of 52 A.D. for one year. So sometime in 51 and 52 A.D. is when these events take place. So you want to write down the margin of your Bible, 51 A.D. Now up to this point, if you've been with us since the midpoint of the book of Acts, then you know that there are how many epistles that Paul has written so far. After the first missionary journey, Paul wrote Galatians. Now from Corinth, he's writing 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. So three of his epistles are in circulation. I'm telling you this so you can start to put all of this into context. By the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, you're going to see how most of your New Testament was generated and came into being. 
Also at this time, since we're talking dates, 51 and 52, just keep in your mind, and you can put it in margin of your Bible, I did, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, was already written and in circulation by this time, and Matthew likely as well. Mark was the first Gospel written, probably written around 45 A.D., Matthew probably written around 50 A.D. So we have two Gospels and three of Paul's epistles. We have five books of our New Testament that by this time are already written and or circulating. Does that make sense? Back to verse 6. Verse 6 says, But when they resisted and they blasphemed, he shook out his garments and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm clean, and from now on I will go to the Gentiles. So Paul is preaching his absurd, his obscene message in the synagogue at Corinth, and the Jews are resisting him and blaspheming him. The word resist is a word that meant to line up in a battle formation. It was a military term. That is the term that Luke uses to describe their resistance. The Jews in the synagogue in Corinth began to take line up in battle formation. They started to go to war with Paul. And it was a war of words that expressed itself in blasphemy. They began to blaspheme Christ. Now, I don't know what they said, and Luke doesn't tell us what they said, but you and I know what blaspheme is. Is blaspheme horrible, terrible, rotten things said about the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that blaspheme? It is. But do you know that you can say nice things about Christ and blaspheme Him? If you say to me, He was a good teacher, and that's all He was, friends, that's blaspheme. That's a really nice thing to say, but that's not the truth about who Christ is. If you say He was a good moral example for us, and that's all He was, that is blaspheme, because that's not the truth about who Christ is and what Christ did. You can say the nicest things about Christ and still blaspheme Him. It's not just the horrible things that you say that's blasphemy. Because to say anything about Christ that is not true of Him is blaspheme. Just like to hold any image in our minds or in our hearts of God that is not true of Him is idolatry, so it is blasphemy to hold any, to say anything about Christ that is not true of Him. He was a good moral example. He was a man. He was a rabbi. He was a Jew. He was a good teacher. All of those things are true, but not just those things. He was also God in human flesh. And to call Him anything less than the incarnate God is blaspheme, no matter how nice it is. Well, I don't think that the Jews were saying nice things about Christ. You think they were saying nice things about Him? My suspicion would be that they were saying some of the similar things that the religious leaders in Jerusalem said about Christ to Christ's face. You are a bastard child. You're illegitimate. You have no father. We know where we come from, but you don't know where you come from. You're possessed of a demon, and the works that you do are done in the power of the evil one. These are the things they said about him. I think similar things were being said about Christ by these religious leaders in Corinth. So what does Paul do? Look what he does in verse 6. He shakes out his garments like this. Shakes the dust off of his garments, and he leaves the synagogue. Now what is Paul doing? The Jews would do this when they left a Gentile country and came back into the Holy Land. They would knock the dust off of their feet. They didn't want to bring Gentile dirt into the Holy Land. Now, I don't know what they did about the wind, blowing Gentile dirt from Gentile nations into the Holy Land, but no Jew was going to be responsible for bringing Gentile dirt into their Holy Land. So they would knock the dust off of their feet before they came back into the Holy Land. And that was a Jew's way of showing his disdain for the Gentiles and saying to the Gentiles, you are outside of the people of God. We are better than you and we're not going to defile ourselves by bringing your dust 
into our land. So when Paul dusts himself off and knocks the dust off of his clothes before he leaves the synagogue, he's doing something very similar. He is showing his disdain for their blasphemy. It's almost as if Paul is saying, I do not want any of the dust from this place of blaspheme to leave with me here and to defile me. I'm leaving all of it behind. Now, the Jews would do this to the Gentiles to show their disdain for the Gentiles. For a Jew to have this done to them by one of their own would have infuriated them. It would have been as if Paul was saying, I'm breaking fellowship with you people. You're, you, by rejecting the truth, are no better than a Gentile. And by rejecting the truth, you're showing that you are outside of the people of God. So now Paul says, I'm going to the Gentiles. He's going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, he did that because they blasphemed. Now what I want you to notice here, folks, is what Paul's response was when the people blasphemed. You notice what he did? I, I, Paul didn't have a problem with people questioning his message. The, the Bereans were called noble because they took their Old Testament manuscripts and they searched the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. They were noble. Paul didn't mind people questioning his message or asking questions of his message to see if it were true or to analyze it. Paul didn't mind people casting aspersions upon himself. He went and talked to the Areopagus after they said, what does this seed picker wish to say? This vagrant teacher wandering around with other people's ideas, promoting them as own. What does he have to say to us? He went and spoke to them after they said of him, he's a proclaimer of strange deities in Acts chapter 17. It didn't matter for Paul what you said about his message. It didn't matter for Paul what you said about him. But once you blasphemed Christ, he's done with you. It's over. I will take my message somewhere else, Paul said. What was the difference? They blasphemed Christ. That's the exact opposite with you and I. We're content to sit around and listen to people take his name in vain and blaspheme him all day long. But once they offend us, well, we're no longer friends with them anymore. We're done once they say something bad about us. For Paul, it was the opposite. It doesn't matter what you say about me. Call me a seed picker if you want. I'll still proclaim the gospel. But once you turn your vocal effects upon Christ and begin to blaspheme Him, Paul's response was predictable. Enough of you. Dust his dust off his jacket and walks out of the synagogue to take the message to the Gentiles. You say, was it right for Paul to do that? He did it in Acts chapter 13, Pisidian Antioch. The Jews began to resist Him and to blaspheme. And Paul says, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life for going to the Gentiles. This is exactly what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10:14. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. That's what Jesus said to them. It's completely appropriate to say to somebody, that's it. I'm done discussing spiritual things with you. I'm not going to give what is holy to dogs or to cast my pearls before swine. And I have had to do this with people that I have witnessed to, some of them in my own family, who when you bring up spiritual things, all they're looking for is an opportunity to vent their hostility about Christ. And they blaspheme Him and they call Him every name under the sun. And I've been in situations and talked with people who've done that and I just shut up. It's enough. I'm not going to argue with somebody like that. I'm not going to bring up spiritual things about like that. You take what is holy and you trample it underfoot. I'm going to stop giving you what is holy. You judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life and so I just stop witnessing to them. I think it's completely appropriate for us to do that. Until there is a change of heart and a change of attitude and a willingness to listen and a willingness to discuss spiritual things with a level head and an even temper and a nice voice, I'm not going to discuss it with you. When you blaspheme Christ, I'm done sharing spiritual truth with you. 
I have other fields to go to which are far more profitable. That's what Paul said. Dust off his dust, dust the coat, dust the dust off of his garments, and I'm going to the Gentiles. Now notice what Paul says as he leaves. He places all of the responsibility for their rejection right on their shoulders. And this is important. Look at verse 6. Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I'm going to the Gentiles. Paul's alluding to Exodus, sorry, Ezekiel chapter 33, where the Lord said to Ezekiel, you're the watchman over the house of Israel. And if the watchman proclaims a coming judgment to the people, and or sorry, if the Lord says to the watchman, there's judgment coming, and the watchman does not proclaim that and relay that to the people, then the watchman is responsible. He's guilty for the blood of those people. But if the watchman sees that judgment is coming as a prophet, and he says to the people, judgment is coming, wrath is coming, run, turn from your sin, and the people won't turn from their sin, then it's the people that are responsible. And when Paul said, I am clean of your blood, your blood is on your own hands, they knew exactly what he was saying. They knew that Paul was saying, I have warned you of the judgment that is to come, and now you bear responsibility for the judgment that you are willingly going to take. I'm clean. I'm going to the Gentiles. Paul places all of the blame for their rejection right squarely on their shoulders where it belongs. You're responsible for your own blood because you have refused to heed the warning of judgment that is to come. Just like in Acts chapter 13 where Paul said in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, you have judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. You reject the message, it's your fault. That's what he's laying on them. That's the blasphemers. Second, I want you to look at the believers in verse 7. Then he left there, that is to say, Paul stopped going to the synagogue, and he started going to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Uh, this Titus or Titius Justus uh, likely is the same man that Paul calls Gaius in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He is referred to as the host of the church at Corinth and a host to himself. And likely Titus Justus had three names and his other name likely was Gaius. You can't prove that, but it's, it's likely that that's who this is. If that's the case, this is a man that Paul himself baptized along with Crispus. And he had a house that was right next to or adjacent to the synagogue. And so Paul stopped going to the synagogue and he started going to the house of Titus Justus or Gaius. He started going into his house and there he would teach, he would preach, he would proclaim right next door to the synagogue. How convenient. Now people who are going to the synagogue and hearing Paul don't have to change their route at all. They can go right past the synagogue and right into the house of Gaius and listen to Paul. Or they can take in some of Paul's teaching as they leave the synagogue right next door. Now this had to have galled the Jews who were blaspheming Christ. Why? In a city of 750,000 people in Corinth, you have to set up shop right next door to us? That had to have upset them. You can't find anywhere else in the city to do your message and lead people astray. You have to set up shop right next door to us? That would have galled them. But not nearly as much as what happened in verse 8. Look at that. Verse 8 says that Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. <gasps> Paul is household. Friends, that is the making of a scandal. You haven't read that in the book of Acts yet, have you? Paul goes into the synagogue, and what do the leaders of the synagogue do? They oppose him and resist him and blaspheme him and attack him and try and run him out of town. But in Corinth, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his household. The leader of the synagogue becomes a believer, a defector, 
this would have sent shockwaves throughout the Jewish community. And they would have been looking for a new leader. Well, that leads us to the third thing that Paul's preaching in Corinth produced. Not only blasphemers and believers, but third baptisms. Look at verse 8. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Now, I promised you something back in Acts chapter 16 that I'm going to deliver on this morning. I promised you that when we got to Acts chapter 18, verse 8, we would deal with the subject of infant baptism. And here's why we're going to deal with the subject of infant baptism. There are four passages in the book of Acts that proponents of infant baptism point to in order to support the practice of baptizing infants of believing parents. And this is one of them. And this is the fourth of the four. So having looked at all four of these now so far, we're going to go back and we're going to look at each of these passages in its context, particularly looking to see if they lend support to the practice of baptizing infants. Now I want to say at the outset of this that a critique or a an evaluation of infant baptism has nothing to do with any hostility that I have in my heart or in my soul for people who practice infant baptism. None whatsoever. I read their books and I respect men like Calvin and Luther and Michael Horton and James Montgomery Boyce and D. James Kennedy and these men who view things differently than I do on this issue. I have great respect and admiration for them. I read their books. I love them. No problem with them personally. Nor is it an attack on those who have been baptized as infants. Because, friends, I was baptized as an infant. Now, I was in the Catholic Church, but I was baptized as an infant. I didn't put up much of a fuss. If I knew then what I know now, I would have put up a lot more fuss than I did. But after I became a believer, I was baptized again as a believer. There's no hostility to those who have been baptized as infants or toward those who believe in infant baptism. Let's get that out of the gate at the beginning. Also, I'm not going to deal with the subject of Catholic infant baptism because the theology behind that practice is worlds different than the theology behind Protestants who baptize infants. Now, some of you may be saying there are Protestants who baptize infants. Yes, they are. Of the Reformed tradition, like Dutch Reformed and other Reformed-type churches, uh, Presbyterian and Lutheran churches practice infant baptism in the Protestant camp. So I'm not going to deal with the Catholic camp. I just want to say it about the Catholics. Catholics have a view of baptism as a sacrament that it has an effect and a power in and of itself. That is to say that the sacrament of baptism, if it is properly administers, conveys a saving grace apart from the faith of the recipient. That is to say that it actually conveys a saving grace without the recipient of baptism exercising any faith in order to make that grace effective. You understand that? So they have a view of baptism that in itself it actually can save people. That's why they baptize infants. That's why I was baptized as an infant, because my grandparents were strong Catholics. My parents weren't, but my grandparents told my parents, if you don't get that boy saved and he dies in infancy, he's going to be lost. The only way he can be saved is if he's baptized. So they took me into the priest and they did whatever they did over me, and I made him rest a little bit easier, because now they knew that if I died as an infant, I was going to go to heaven. That's the Catholic view of it. Now, the Protestant idea of infant baptism should have been left with the Catholic Church, in my opinion. Catholics have a view of baptism that is in itself heretical. That should have been left with all of the Pope's heresy in the Catholic Church. And in my opinion, I don't think Luther and Calvin and men like that reformed enough. They should have got completely away from it and abandoned it entirely. But instead, it 
has kind of made its way into the tradition of some of our Protestant churches, and it is actually defended, and I understand the theology behind it. I'm not speaking out of ignorance. I took a theology course which was taught by a professor who was a paedo-baptist. That's an infant Baptist. So I know of whereof I speak theologically. And so let me describe to you, not the Catholic view, but the Protestant view or the Protestant perspective on this. The Protestants who practice infant baptism would say this. We are part of a covenant, the new covenant. And this covenant is an expansion and an extension and a continuation of the old covenant. And children who are born to me as a believing parent are born into a covenant community. Because I am part of a covenant and my wife is part of a covenant, the children who are born are born into a covenant home, under the covenant, sort of in a covenant sphere, if you will. Now, in the Old Testament, they baptized, sorry, they circumcised infants at the age of eight days old as a sign and a seal of the Old Covenant. And in the New Covenant, baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign and the seal of the New Covenant. Therefore, we should baptize infants who are born into the covenant sphere or the covenant home. You understand that? Now, if that is true, if that's how the covenants work, if baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign and the seal of the covenant, and therefore we should baptize infants, then here's what I would expect to see. I would expect to see the book of Galatians deal with that, since the book of Galatians is all about circumcision and its role in the church. I would have expected somewhere in Galatians for Paul to say to those Gentile believers who were not familiar with circumcision and who had been baptized, I would have expected Paul to say, circumcision is no more, it's been replaced by baptism as the new sign and the seal of the new covenant. I would have expected Paul to say that, but he doesn't. Absent from the discussion in the book of Galatians. In Acts chapter 15, I would have expected as the subject of circumcision came up in the early church, that the elders and the apostles, as they dealt with it at the Jerusalem council, in writing to those Gentile believers, would have said to them, circumcision has been replaced by baptism, but it's absent. I actually had one person who was attending here for, this was a while back, who we were having a discussion about this, and he was a paedo-baptist, and he was vigorously, vigorously trying to change my mind on this so that I could baptize his soon-to-be-born child. Because his child was, his wife was pregnant, and they were expecting in a couple months to have another child, and he wanted me to do the baptism for him. And so we were having these discussions, and, and I know what the theology is behind it. It's the view that we give the sign of the covenant to the people born into the covenant sphere. And then they say, and, and here's the, the clincher, then they say, the continuance in the covenant is dependent upon fulfilling the requirements of the covenant. What are the requirements of the new covenant? Repentance and personal faith in Christ. And so they say, we baptize them as infants in the hope and expectation that they will continue in the covenant in which they have been baptized, and that when the time comes, they will place their faith in Christ. And this is what this young man was arguing with me. And brought up a bunch of different subjects and talked at it from a bunch of different angles, and it basically boiled down to, he said he believed that his child was among the elect because God had allowed that child to be born into a covenant home and that there would come a time when that child would place faith in Christ and he was baptizing the child in that confident expectation that because they were part of the covenant home, because they were part of the covenant sphere, they would eventually 
demonstrate their election by placing their faith in Christ. Now, here's a couple problems with that. First of all, friends, you cannot count on your child's election. You cannot bank on that. I don't know about you, but none of my children were born with a big E tattooed on their chest for elect. And none of my children were born with an N tattooed on their chest for non-elect. There's absolutely no guarantee whatsoever that my child is chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. I can pray for my child. I can catechize my child. I share scripture with my child. I do everything within my human capacity to bring the law of God and the scriptures to bear upon their conscience and upon their sin in order that they might see their need for a savior. But baptizing that child is not going to make them elect. That was decided in Christ before the foundation of the world. And there's nothing I can do to change that status. And nowhere in Scripture does it say that you and I should baptize infants as an expression of the parent's faith that the child will become a believer later on. Nowhere is that said. What does Scripture say? Scripture says baptism is a symbol of a spiritual reality that has taken place in the life of the believer. Baptism in Scripture always follows, never precedes, active saving faith. Always follows, never precedes active saving faith in the Scriptures. Now, the people who believe in infant baptism would call themselves of the Calvinistic persuasion. They're Calvinists when it comes to doctrines like depravity of man and election and the drawing of God and the perseverance of the saints in the faith. I share that perspective as a Calvinist. But here's my problem. It's inconsistent. The, the idea of baptizing infants is inconsistent with the Reformed perspective on the doctrines of grace, particularly with election. It's also inconsistent with the battle cry of the Reformation, which is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's inconsistent. So if you're going to hold to those doctrines, then you should hold to them consistently and at least work out your doctrine of election, from my perspective, in terms that would allow you to see that you should only baptize those who you know are elect because they have demonstrated their calling and their election by working out their own salvation with fear and trembling. That's the idea. So what passages do they use to support infant baptism? Let's just look at four of them in the book of Acts. Having said all of that introductory stuff, and I promise that the rest of the message will not be as long as the introduction. First is in Acts chapter 10. Turn there. Acts chapter 10. I'm just going to look at each of these four passages that are leaned upon as support for the Protestant practice of baptizing infants. And we're just going to ask ourselves, do these texts teach this practice or even lend support in an implicit way to this practice? Acts chapter 10, you know the story. It's the story of Cornelius. Peter saw the vision. Cornelius had the angel appear to him. Peter, later on in Acts chapter 11, when he was relaying to the apostles what had happened, look at Acts chapter 11 real quick, verse 13. This is important because this is where the subject of household comes up. Now listen, what you're going to see in each of these four passages, while you're turning to Acts 11, what you're going to see in each of these four passages is a reference to household and a reference to baptism. Household and baptism is the common thing in all four of these. Look at Acts chapter 11. Peter explaining his run-in with the Gentile on the hot seat before the apostles in Jerusalem says, And he, that is speaking about Cornelius, Peter said, He, Cornelius, reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, 
who is called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your households. So that's what the angel said to Cornelius. Now back up to the end of chapter 10, where this incident is is taking place in real time, so to speak, not Peter's relaying of it, but when it was actually happening. Chapter 10, verse 43, I want you to notice the emphasis. Peter, in his message, says, Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening. See that? It's key. All of those who were listening, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and all the circumcised, that is all the Jewish believers who were with Peter, who came with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Now here's the argument. The household was baptized. Households must include infants. Therefore, infants were baptized in Cornelius' household by Peter. That's the argument. Now what do you notice from the text? Peter was preaching and he was emphasizing what? Belief. You believe, you'll be saved. In mid-sentence, while Peter was speaking, the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius because Cornelius believed. Once Peter got to the point about belief, he was waiting with bated breath for Peter to get to the heart of the Gospel. Finally, Peter gets to it. Cornelius, in his heart, believes. No sinner's prayer, no checking a box, no altar call coming forward. He just believes. And the Spirit falls upon him and all those who were listening to his message and who believed, and they started speaking in tongues. And when Peter saw them speaking in tongues, Peter said, who can refuse them to be baptized? On what basis did Peter baptize them? Because they were speaking in tongues, which was a sign to Peter of what? That they had been saved. Who spoke in tongues? All those who believed who were listening to Peter's message. Now notice the absence of infants from the text. Not mentioned. You have to assume that infants were present in the household. That's the assumption from the text. Because they're not mentioned. All those who heard, believed, when they believed, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter says they're genuinely saved. Who can resist bringing water in and having them baptized? Who's going to argue against that? Who did he baptize? Cornelius' whole household? Yeah. Why? Because they all believed when they heard. No infants present. Second text, Acts chapter 16. Verse 5. This is the story of Lydia. Sorry, not verse 5. Verse 14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, listening, that's common with the Acts 10 passage, isn't it? She was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things which were spoken by Paul, and when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, in other words, since you have determined that I am a believer, since you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. Notice anything absent from the text? Infants. Now, household is mentioned, Jim. I know household is mentioned. In those days, household included your servants. It included anybody who lived under your house and under your roof. 
your elderly aging parents that you might have been caring for, any children that you had, any servants and their children, Lydia, who was listening to the message, believed, and Paul judged her faithful to the Lord. That's why he baptized her. Paul baptized Lydia because the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. You have to assume, second time I've had to say this, you have to assume that infants were present in that household. And listen, in the case of Lydia, that's not a good assumption, and here's why. She's a wealthy woman who is a seller of purple fabrics. She is a businesswoman who has her own occupation. And in that culture, that indicates to us one of two things. Either she was widowed, and so she was in business, providing for her own needs, in which case if she was widowed, then likely if she had children, they could have easily been old enough to believe and to place faith in Christ. Or she was single and had never been married, in which case we shouldn't assume that she had infants because she was not a promiscuous woman. She was a God-fearing, God-fearing Gentile. So it's not a sound assumption to assume that infants were present. They're not mentioned at all. You have to assume that that's the case. Paul baptized her because she believed. He judged and discerned that she was a believer. She heard and listened to the message of the gospel and responded to it. And Paul baptized her on that basis. Her and her whole household, yes. Third passage, still in Acts chapter 16. You're familiar with this one too because we've gone through this with the Philippian jailer. After being put in jail, or beaten and put in jail, and the earthquake releases Paul, the Philippian jailer sees this in verse 30. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. What did they do? Paul spoke the word of the Lord to him and to whom? All who were in his house. Was Paul speaking to infants? Little baby in his arm, preaching the gospel to that baby, hoping that that baby would believe? He wasn't. He was speaking the word of God to Cornelius and to everybody who was in his household, everybody who was under his roof. Verse 32, or verse 33, And they took him that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. You notice what the emphasis is? Paul preached the word to Cornelius, sorry, to the jailer and all his household. Verse 33, what's it say? He had believed in God with all his household. Paul baptized his whole household. Why? He believed. The whole household believed. Everybody who heard the word of God from Paul's lips that night as he shared with everybody in the household, all of them believed. Now, do infants believe? They don't. They can't understand sin and judgment to come and the wrath of God and the holiness of God and the idea of a substitutionary Savior who died in their place and took their sins upon Himself so that they could have life on the basis of faith in Him and His sacrifice. They can't understand all of that. When Paul preached the Word to his whole household, he preached the Word to all of those who were capable of believing and all of those who believed in, in the jailer's household got saved and Paul baptized him and his whole household. Why? Because his whole household believed. You have to assume, that's the third time I've had to say this, that infants were present. In the case of the jailer, that's not a sound assumption because in those days, jailers in, of jails were usually retired military personnel who retired from active military service and they would go into a guard or a security service or to a, a jail work like they, did, like they did in Philippi. This man was likely an older man. Fourth passage, the book of Acts, chapter 18, verse 8. 
We're back to where we started. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they looking, heard, were believing and being baptized. Now, friends, I don't know if I could find a verse that is clearer than that. What was the basis of the baptism? Belief. How were they able to believe? Because they heard. Now, do you see what is in each one of these texts? They heard the Word of God, they believed, and they were baptized. That's the order. That's what happened with Crispus. You say, well, all of Crispus's household was baptized. Certainly. All of Crispus's household believed. In Paul's day, listen, the fourth time I have to say this, you have to assume that infants were present because they're not mentioned in the text. Not at all. So you have to assume that household means infants. And with the with Crispus, that's just not a solid assumption at all. And here's why. In those days, the leaders of the synagogues were not young men. Now, when I became the teaching pastor of this church, I was 24 years old. I had no infants in my house. I had one on the way. Deidre was pregnant with our first child. 24 years old. They did not let that happen in Paul's day with the leaders of the synagogue. These were older men. We can safely conclude that if Crispus, if he had any children living in his house at the time whatsoever, they would have been old enough to believe in all likelihood. You cannot assume that there are infants present when infants are not mentioned in the text. They're just not there. All of Crispus's household was baptized because all of Crispus's household believed. Four texts in the book of Acts. You have to assume that infants are present. In most cases, that's not even a safe assumption. And you have to put infants into the text where they're just not mentioned and they're not there. Now, are there other verses of Scripture that are used to support infant baptism? Surely there are some in the, in the Gospels where Jesus said, Suffer little children to come to me. What does that have to do with baptism? Answer, absolutely nothing. Baptism is not mentioned in the context, not mentioned in the text. It wasn't even going on. You have to take a places where children are mentioned and assume there were baptisms going on there. And then in the book of Acts where baptisms are mentioned, you have to assume that there were children involved in it. There's too many assumptions for me to build an entire doctrine of baptism for infants on passages that are silent about the very things that they're supposed to support. Does that make sense? What is baptism about? It is an act of obedience done on behalf of the person who has repented of their sins and placed their faith in Christ for salvation. It is an act of obedience. We would have to assume, to practice infant baptism, I would have to assume in Acts that every time a household was mentioned, infants were there. I would have to assume that all of the adults were baptized for one reason as a symbol of one thing and that infants were baptized for another reason as a symbol of another thing. And Acts just does not support that whatsoever. So, And what about the Old Testament and all the circumcision and baptism thing? Listen, never go into the Old Testament to build your doctrine about a New Testament practice because baptism wasn't practiced in the Old Testament. It wasn't foreshadowed in the Old Testament. It wasn't seen in the Old Testament. It wasn't taught. It wasn't even part of the Old Covenant. This is something that's entirely New Testament. So let's just stick with the New Testament and say, what does it say? It says, baptism is an act done by believers who have placed their faith in Christ and it is an outward expression, an outward profession of their faith in the Savior. That's what baptism is. And we just had a vivid illustration of this this summer, didn't we? I baptized the whole household. Church camp out. Do you remember that? It was my pleasure to baptize Drew and Brenda and Connor and David Curry. A whole household 
we baptized. Now, do we assume that there were infants in the household? In fact, if Luke were to describe that, here's what he would say. He would say, Drew, having heard the word, believed he and his whole household. And he was baptized. Having believed, he was baptized, he and his whole household. That's how Dr. Luke would describe that. Now, isn't it safe to say that something that we have seen played out with a family in our own congregation, culminating in their baptism this summer, just may have happened a few times in the early church and that Dr. Luke would have recorded the same thing? That's a safe conclusion. It's exactly what was having going on. There's no infants in the Curry home, but a whole household heard the word, believed, and they were baptized. That is exactly what Luke is describing in Acts 10, Acts 16, twice, and Acts 18, verse 8. That's my thing on infant baptism. I hope that answers some questions, probably raises more questions than it answers in some, in some way. Once again, this has nothing to do with animosity or hatred or hostility or anything like that. There are a lot of infant Baptists and pedo-Baptists who are friends and I relate to them well. I love them. I don't know how many or if any of you, other than one or two that I've talked to, have, were baptized as infants. And it really is not even pertinent to the discussion. Because the question is not what tradition has been handed down to me. The question is what does Scripture say? And it simply does not make the case from the book of Acts. And the only reason we bring this up and spend the time on it is because it is mentioned in the book of Acts, and I want to make sure that we address that before we're done. Now, Paul took his offensive, absurd gospel into Corinth. Those who were perishing said this is foolishness, and they perished. Those who were the called believed on the Lord, and they were baptized. And I think it was Paul's intention to leave Corinth rather quickly. I don't think he enjoyed ministry in Sin City. But the Lord had an entirely different intention for the Apostle Paul. He wanted Paul in Corinth for a while, and you're going to see why next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for its clarity, for its teaching. We pray that you would give to us the grace and the illumination to not go beyond what is written, but to take what is written, to observe it, to learn from it, and to submit ourselves and yield ourselves to it. We thank you that these things are not hidden. They are not complex. They are available for us. They're on the bottom shelf, so to speak, if we would just apprehend these things and look at them in their context. And we thank you for this time this morning that we've had to do that very thing. We thank you that you have saved us through the preaching of your word, through the proclamation of the message of the cross, that you've drawn us to yourself, given us the grace to believe in order that we might follow you and walk with you as disciples of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.